Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. I'm back with a third part of the stories of the Radium Girls, so let's just jump in. Last we left off, Marguerite had finally succumbed to the radium poisoning, but the others were still fighting. In August of 1925, Albina, Quinta's pregnant sister, was now in labor, but she felt that something wasn't right. After four years of trying for him, her baby was stillborn. Up until now, she hadn't had any issues like the others did. But just two weeks after that, she started to have severe pain in her limbs and her left leg began shortening. She went to see Dr. Humphreys after the family doctor was unable to help. While there, she overheard the doctors talking about her, and they were saying that she was a radium case. They put her in a plaster cast to hope that it would help, but it did nothing for her. Meanwhile, Catherine Wiley had discovered that Dr. Flynn was interested in the cases, but was unaware that he was working for USRC, and also working to discredit Dr. Martland. So, when he asked for a list of the sick women, she gladly gave it to him. Catherine Schraub was the first he reached out to, and she eventually went to consult him in 1926. But, to her confusion, he told her, quote, Radium could not and had not harmed her. So... She told the others this, of course, and they began to doubt the whole thing. Albina said, We all thought it significant that of the several doctors who treated us, only one doctor, Dr. Martland, had informed us that our illnesses were due to radioactive substances. But Dr. Flynn was lying to the girls and in his publications stating radium poisoning was not an issue. He had told Drinker, I cannot but feel that the paint is to blame for the girls' conditions. Grace Fryer had not given up on filing a lawsuit yet, and once she found out that USRC had settled out of court with the families of Marguerite Carlo, Sarah Malafier, and Hazel Couser, she got back in touch with Henry Godfried, who tried to get the company to settle with her. When they wouldn't, though, Godfried dropped her case. But the company may not have been doing so well, and with the case with the other three women set to go to court originally, it didn't look as though they could win especially since Sarah Malafier still worked there when the drinker report was conducted, and she was a part of it. It was also found out at the trial that they had suppressed the report rather than act upon it, and it's possible that the women would have won the trial, and the company would have been forced to pay out way more than the settlement amounts. At this time, Grace had lost all but three teeth in her lower jaw, which was bothering her again, and was suffering from bad pain in her back, but she was putting off going to the doctors because of the cost. But somehow, Dr. Flynn managed to arrange to examine Grace and told her that her blood looked perfect and that she was in good health, which she obviously was not. In January of 1927, she went to see Dr. Humphreys again to have her back and foot looked at. He had both x-rayed, which showed the bone was breaking down in both her spine and her foot. There wasn't much he could do for her other than try to make her more comfortable. He fitted her with a foot brace and a steel back brace, which went from her shoulders to her waist. She was to wear it every day, and she was only allowed to take it off for two minutes at a time. But she later said she could hardly stand without it. She had been looking for someone to take on her case, and after striking out with lawyer after lawyer, Dr. Hoffman suggested she go see the firm Potter & Berry. So she went to see Raymond H. Berry on May 3, 1927. He took a statement from her, and three days later, Catherine Schaub also met with him. On the 7th, he summoned them back to tell them that he would take the case. Grace's issue up until this point was most told her that it was past the statute of limitations. 
Barry's theory was that since they couldn't have brought a lawsuit until they knew the company was to blame, and as the company had actively misled them, they only knew for certain with a formal diagnosis from Dr. Marland in July of 1925, so this is when the statute time would have began. He started filing with Grace's first. In total, she was suing for $250,000, equal to $3.4 million today. Her case was in the headlines supporting her from the beginning, and soon the sisters Quinta and Albina joined her in filing. These two were married, and Barry also filed lawsuits on behalf of their husbands. In May 1927, Edna Hussman, who had worked at the Waterbury Clock Company and up until now had been following the advice of Dr. Flynn, went to see Dr. Humphreys after one night of seeing herself in the mirror in the dark and realized her bones were glowing under her skin. She was familiar with the glow of radium, but when she heard she was suffering from radium poisoning, she said that it was the first she'd heard of it. She'd spent a year in a plaster cast because of her left leg, but it shrank by three inches and her right shoulder was so stiff she could no longer use it and had been suffering from anemia. She and her husband joined the lawsuit in June. Barry interviewed Wiley, Hamilton, Hoffman, Martland, Humphreys, and Von Zachicki, and importantly, now knowing that there were radium cases at Waterbury Clock Company, there had been a few that had gotten sick before Edna and quietly settled with Flynn's help, it proved that there was an occupational disease. But since they were settled, there was no proof, no lawsuits that had been filed by the women from there. Barry learned that Dr. Flynn had been seeing these women and telling them that there was no radium present in their bodies. One woman, Catherine Moore, he told this five times when she kept coming back, and she later died of radium poisoning. So Barry decided to find out more about him. But when he wrote to the New Jersey Board of Medical Examiners, he received the response, Our records do not show the issuance of a license to practice medicine and surgery or any branch of medicine and surgery to Frederick B. Flynn. Turns out, he was not a licensed medical doctor. His degree was in philosophy. This was a shocking revelation to many, but to Flynn, it didn't seem to matter. To him, he was still an expert in industrial hygiene, and if Dr. Hoffman, who is a statistician, could be a specialist, he'd done nothing wrong. Dr. Hamilton wrote to him asking him to reconsider what he was doing, but Flynn didn't seem to care. Meanwhile, Barry reported him for practicing without a license. Beyond that, Dr. Hamilton helped Barry personally connect with Walter Littman, a leading writer with The World, one of the most powerful newspapers in America at the time. The Dial Painter cases was exactly the type of thing the paper loved to support, and having Littman as an ally was great news for them. He immediately wrote about USRC trying to get the case thrown out based on the statute of limitations, calling it intolerable and despicable. He wrote, It is scarcely thinkable that the court will not agree with counsel for the complainant. The cases were consolidated into one to avoid duplicate hearings and transferred to the court of chancery, which would give the ruling on whether Barry's interpretation of the statute of limitations would uphold. This trial date was set for January 12, 1928. Barry had found a specialist, Elizabeth Hughes, to run new radioactivity tests on the women, and they set a date in November 1927 for them. Mrs. Hughes was a physicist and had been an assistant to Von Sochiki in the past. USRC also said that they would like to have their doctor examine the women as well. Barry also had another idea to help prove that the radium poisoning was killing these women. The only way to extract radium from bones and prove beyond doubt that radium was inside the bone was to cremate a bit of bone and to boil it in hydrochloric acid. This was obviously something the five women couldn't help with. But Albina's and Quinta's little sister, Molly Magia, the first one who died of radium poisoning, could help with. 
The family agreed to have her exhumed and autopsied, as it would provide evidence for the case, and the family would have confirmation of what had made her sick. She was exhumed on October 15th, with 13 officials in all gathered to witness it. Among them were her father and her sister's husbands, there to confirm her identification from the nameplate on the coffin. A tent had been set up over the grave and curtains drawn around it. After five years, the outer box and casket were almost falling apart, and between the cracks in the wood, there was a soft, luminescent glow coming from the inside, an unmistakable sign of radium. Dr. Martland led the autopsy, with the help of several doctors from New York. The doctors concluded that there was no sign of syphilis, the original cause of death attributed to her, and Molly and her family were vindicated from that shameful secret. But when it came to the radiation tests, they concluded... Each and every portion of tissue and bone tested gave evidence of radioactivity. Their findings received a lot of publicity, and it got Ella Eckert, a friend of Molly's, to come see Barry, although she didn't sign on with him then. She was better off than the other five, but she told Barry that she had spent more than $200, equal to about 2724 today, for medical attention, x-rays, blood tests, and medicine, all for nothing. She'd fallen at work at Bombarders a year before, and her shoulder never healed, and so she was forced to leave her job. Her arm was swollen from the shoulder all the way down to her hand, and she was in severe pain. She was a single mother to a little boy and couldn't afford to be sick and out of work. Then, a few months later, Barry got word that Ella was in the orthopedic hospital and had been for a few weeks now. She had the usual signs of radium poisoning, like anemia and the white shadow on her bones showing on the x-rays. But she was slightly different from the rest, which Dr. Marlin commented was very puzzling and not as clear-cut as the rest. She had an operation on her shoulder, and the doctors found, quote, A calcareous formation was attached and had permeated the entire shoulder region, and was a growth of considerable size. This was something that hadn't been seen in any of the dial painters yet. Ella had developed a sarcoma, which is a cancerous tumor of the bone. She died the same day of the surgery— December 13, 1927. In the few months between Ella's visit to see Barry and her passing away, Barry was busy preparing for the upcoming trial. On November 14th, the first testimony was taken as part of a deposition. Barry had formally summoned Dr. Drinker to testify, and that same day he met Edward A. Markley, the attorney that would lead USRC's defense. Catherine Drinker and their colleague that had helped with the study at the studio were there too. The USRC lawyers objected nearly to every question and every piece of evidence Barry tried to submit. When Dr. Drinker began, he started by stating, I should like to make a statement for the purpose of the record on my side relative to this. Markley jumped in saying, before you do that, we object to it. When it was Markley's turn to question, they asked them if they had any experience investigating radium poisoning, which of course they answered none. They were trying to imply that they were inexperienced and should not be taken seriously. But as Catherine Drinker pointed out, this was the first time the disease was discovered. The day of the trial, the women arrived at the courthouse to find the newspaper men surrounding them outside and packing into the gallery of the courtroom. They were all in much worse shape than they had been six months ago, with Albina and Edna being in the worst shape. Albina, after finding out she was pregnant in the fall, was ordered by her doctors to have an induced abortion because of the condition she was in, making it the third baby she had lost now. Mentally, she was doing about as horribly as she was physically. Edna was the first to take the witness stand and had to be helped, nearly carried up by her husband. 
Her hips were locked in place at an odd angle, and she could not move her legs, which were now constantly crossed. The company lawyers kept up their aggressive questioning tactics, but it only won sympathy for Edna as she struggled to answer with exact details they demanded about the dates and how often she would stumble when she first had problems. Judge Bax, sympathetic, even interrupted them at one point asking, of what importance is it? They asked Dr. Hoffman the same question as the drinkers about if he had experience with this before, and when he pointed out no one else did either, Markley told him to only speak for himself, and then tried to get Dr. Hoffman's evidence dismissed entirely based on the fact that he was, quote, a mere statistician. The judge did not allow it, retorting, I think he is a little more than that. Grace took the stand next. Markley questioned her to try to push her into saying that she had known the work had made her sick earlier than July of 1925, once again trying to get it thrown out based on the statute of limitations. Grace stuck it out, though. Quinta was the last to take the stand for the day, and the judge was concerned watching her limp as she approached, asking what was the trouble before Barry could even ask anything himself. When she was finished, the vice chancellor announced the next court date would be April 25th, more than three months away. In the meantime, Barry convinced some New York doctors to admit the women to the hospital for a month, where the doctors tried to come up with some sort of treatment for them. Nothing they tried worked, but the women did find it a nice break from the constant attention. Flynn hadn't stopped trying to get to them, though, and when the women asked Barry to write to him to stop what they considered harassment, he replied that he considered Barry impudent and he wouldn't respond to the other inaccuracies of the letter. But on April 22nd, three days before the trial resumed, the women were all summoned to a compulsory examination by the company doctors, and Flynn was there, along with Dr. Herman Schlunt, a close personal friend of USRC's Vice President Barker. They took their blood and radioactivity tests were done, but the equipment was deliberately positioned so that the table was between large portions of the patient's body and the instrument, and Flynn also held it two to three feet away from them. They weren't surprised to hear the verdict that the company doctors didn't find them to be radioactive. Catherine Schaub was up first when the trial continued, but she was nervous and the USRC lawyers took advantage, pressing her like they had with Grace to admit that she had known she was sick from radium earlier than 1925, drilling her about her dental appointments and if there was any suspicion it was related to her cousin Irene Rudolph's illness, who had died in 1923 which Dr. Neff had suspected was caused by some sort of industrial disease. Abina and Quinta also gave evidence, and plenty in the gallery, including even more journalists this time, cried as Barry took Quinta through the list of women that she had worked with, all of whom had died from the mysterious illnesses. Grace also took the stand again. She had recognized a face across the courtroom, realizing he was what she thought was another doctor that had been there when Flynn had examined her in 1926 and told her nothing was wrong. The man was actually Mr. Barker, the current vice president of the company. His presence that day confirmed how involved the company had been with Flynn. Elizabeth Hughes, the specialist that had retested the woman for radium, then testified, showing off how much she knew about radium and its dangers. The company lawyers tried to discredit her by pointing out that she was currently a housewife. She had young kids at home and was caring for them rather than working for now. Markley hounded her with questions, trying to make it look like she really didn't know that much about radium. Then, a doctor that had helped with Molly Magia's autopsy testified that it was radium that had killed her, and Markley tried to get all evidence regarding Molly struck out, pointing out that her death certificate had syphilis as the cause written on it, but the judge allowed it to be heard as evidence. Dr. Humphreys was the last to go up that day, and he had a long testimony, 
recounting each of the cases of the five women, from the beginning, through guessing how to treat them, and up into the present and their worst-off states, telling the court that he thought nothing could cure it. The next day, more distinguished doctors testified that it had been common knowledge since 1912 that radium was harmful. Barry submitted a ton of literature into the court record to support their claims. Markley tried citing the curative powers of radium, but his argument was obviously full of holes. John Roach and his boss, Andrew McBride, from the Department of Labor also testified, along with Arthur Rader and the current president, Clarence B. Lee. Rader denied seeing any of the women ever put a brush in the mouth of the studio, and also denied that Von Sachiki ever told him the paint was harmful. Then, Dr. Martin, hailed as a star witnessed by the papers, explained the details of the autopsies of Sarah and Marguerite that had confirmed radium poisoning. When the company lawyers pointed out that out of the 200 girls, only the five suing had problems, he retorted, there are about 13 or 14 other girls that are dead and buried now who, if you dig them up, will probably show the same things. The next day, April 27th, started with Dr. Von Sachiki's testimony. Near the end of it, Barry asked him if it was true that he hadn't stopped the lip painting because it was in Mr. Rader's jurisdiction, not his. He answered, quote, absolutely not. This shocked both Barry and Markley. Grace, Quinta, Dr. Martland, and Dr. Hoffman had all told Barry that he had told him this. Barry then asked him about his warning to Grace in the studio that one time. He answered, quote, There is a possibility I told her that, which would be the perfectly natural thing to do, seeing the unusual thing of putting a girl put a brush to her lips. Of course I would say, do not do that. Even Judge Bax thought that this sounded odd and asked him what reason he'd have to, to which Von Sachaki told him, unsanitary conditions. The judge then asked if at the time whether he would have been apprehensive or not that the radium could affect her. Again, he answered, absolutely not. Barry and Grace were disappointed, to say the least. After Catherine Wiley and Dr. Flynn took the stand, Barry rested his case. USRC would get their chance to tell their side, then there would be finally a verdict. They still had the afternoon left, but Markley requested a conference with Judge Bax, which took place off record. He thought it hardly worth starting with just a half a day, so the case had to be postponed until there was time in the court calendar and the company intended to present about 30 witnesses. After that, the hearing was adjourned until September 24th, five months away. For all they knew, it was five months that the women didn't have. Barry immediately fought this decision and found two lawyers that were willing to give up their court slot at the end of May, and then the judge agreed to it. USRC, of course, objected, claiming it would be impossible to continue in May as several of their expert witnesses were going abroad for the summer. Barry knew they might be procrastinating because they were hoping the women would die before they ever reached a verdict, so he decided to use their poor health to their advantage and had four different doctors sign sworn statements that the women were in fact getting worse and may not live until September. The media took up arms for the women, with Walter Littman of The World writing, We confidently assert that this is one of the most damnable travesties of justice that has ever come to our attention. Other newspapers followed suit, and even Norma Thomas, a socialist politician, spoke out on the case, declaring it was a, quote, vivid example of the ways of an unutterably selfish capitalist systems, which cares nothing about the lives of its workers, but only seeks to guard its profits. Letters came pouring in, too, mostly in support, but a few negative ones came in, too, and some quack remedies for the women to try, with even a company suggesting their electric blankets could cure them. The women were undeniably famous. 
Barry asked if the women would talk to the press, and they were all for it. They all shared details about their lives, and Kinsa and Grace posed for a photo shoot. The public was shocked and saddened by it all, and they took the women's heart. Of course, Markley and USRC weren't pleased with this. They had Dr. Flynn speak out, who pronounced that his tests hadn't shown radium and that he was convinced the women's issues were caused by nerves. Blaming female hysteria was actually a common response to occupational illness in women at the time. The public wasn't buying it, though. With the pressure of the public, the court was willing to support Barry. Then, Judge Bax came up with a different interpretation of the statute of limits, suggesting that since there was radium in the women's bones, and it was still hurting them, the statute reset with every moment of their injuries. The trial was also set to go ahead in May, regardless of USRC's response. But then, Barry got a call from Judge Clark, who was his old boss from when Clark was a partner in a law firm and Barry was his clerk. He suggested that they settle out of court. About a week later, Judge Clark also met with URC's legal team and President Lee, which Barry knew nothing about, and the women were getting sicker as time went by. Dr. Humphreys had already told Barry that they were both physically and mentally unable to attend the upcoming trial date. Barry had publicly remarked that he would fight to the bitter end, but he was privately having his doubts that they would be able to get a verdict in time to benefit the women. And that's where I'm leaving off for today. Next time will be the final episode on the Radium Girls. So thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.